welcome. Today we are speaking with a very special guest, Helen Zuman. Helen, you wouldn't mind, I'll just read a brief description of how you describe yourself on your website just to kind of give everyone an idea of Helen because I think this was uh, perfectly written. I loved it. It says, Helen Zuman is a tree-hugging dirt worshiper who devoted to turning waste into food and the stinky guck of experience into fertile, fragrant prose. She is also the author of Mating in Captivity, a memoir of her five years post-Harvard in a cult with a radical take on sex and relationships. What I've read from you, Helen, I think that was a perfect description. I loved it. And if you wouldn't mind, just kind of talk about your experience here as a writer and what you're currently working on. And of course, you know, mating in captivity as well. Sure. Thank you for that introduction, Ben. So currently in the realm of writing, I am working on a novel tentatively titled Common App. It is set in... 2024 during the U.S. presidential election. And in in this world, the two major parties have merged into the Republicrats. And then the upstart party is called Dirt First, exclamation point, continuing the theme of dirt worshiping. And the protagonist is an editor of college application essays, which is something that I did for about seven years. I don't do it anymore. And she has a chance to influence the election when she is assigned to edit the common application essay of the Republicrat candidate's son. So there's some leakage involved, there's some shenanigans, and there's also a subplot involving the Scots against the English, (laughs) even though it is set in the United States. And there's revenge and stuff like that. So that's my current project. And then, of course, Mating in Captivity, my first book, a memoir, came out in 2018. And like the description says, is about my five years at Zendik Farm. And really my my purpose in that book, it was cer- certainly the process of writing it was one of composting the experience for me. But as far as, you know, what I wanted to give to readers, it, at the core of that was just like an, an immersive experience of coming along with me on this really improbable journey, but just like being with my, my character step-by-step, beat-by-beat as I enter this world and look around and, you know, make assessments of it that aren't necessarily accurate and then stumble along into, you know, all kinds of catastrophes, but, you know, also revelations at the end, but just to, to create an experience where, where people who have never had this kind of, had this kind of thing happen to them could could come along with me and imagine how really this could happen to anyone. Yeah. And that's, that's an incredible, I think, gift to give back to the world of uh, writing as well, because like you said, not many people have had that experience. Um, So to be able to convey that through your work, is just incredible. And I love that you said composting the experience. It was somewhat of that for you. Um, I think that's a great, great outlook on that. To dive into your experience there on Zendik Farms, what was the initial thing that maybe caught your attention or piqued your interest with the farm itself? Yeah, so I found Zendik in a book called The Communities Directory. This was back in 1999. And I had been on a quest 
you know, in the few months since I had graduated from college with a grant to explore intentional communities, I've been on a quest for a place to be, a place to belong, a place to go back to land to learn homesteading skills and stuff. And also I had, I had majored in visual art in college and I was into writing and I was kind of looking for a longer term replacement of this super awesome co-op house, sort of the hippie house that I had lived in my last year of Harvard. So when I, when I read the description of Zendikarm in this book, some of the things that caught me were they had a farm, they, you know, took care of animals and grew food and built their own buildings and stuff, but they were also, you know, into the arts. So I saw this as a place where I could, you know, combine my current interests with learning new things. They also said they had the youngest average age of any community in the world. I had no idea how they got that statistic, but I believed it. And I was like, yay, continuation of college. And then from there, I I checked out the website. There was just sort of this air of like darkness and intrigue and mystery to it. That was one thing. And there was also this essay. Well, I don't know if it was called The Big Lie, but it was about the big lie. It was about this idea that everybody is lying to each other all the time. That in the death culture, which is what Zendit called the outside world, no one could, could ever be completely honest with each other. And so it wasn't just outright lying, but lying by omission and lying by just being fake and being nice and didn't really feel that way. And that just really resonated with me. I was, you know, feeling somewhat lost post-college, but I think, you know, even, even before that, I just, I, I had for a long time had the sense of being an outsider and just being, you know, really, really aghast at how, um, you know, everybody around me just seemed to be kind of feeding themselves into the world chomping machine without questioning whether that was really what they wanted to do with their wild and precious lives. From my research that I did, and in fact, I actually didn't happen to read uh, The Big Lie myself. I found uh, some of Wolf's work on this obscure website on the depths of the internet where they actually Mm -hmm. were publishing a decent bit of his previous work, at least what they alleged to be his work. And I did happen to read that piece, which was quite powerful, I would say to a degree. But what was the dynamic there power wise, you know, since Wolf was gone and and passed away by the time you were there? Yes, yes. Wolf died in June of 99. And I arrived in late October of 99. So he had been dead for a little while by then. So Errol, his widow and the co-founder of the farm was very much in charge. I mean, the two of them had run the farm together when he was alive. And he had been very sick and feeble for the last, you know, few years of his life. So my, my impression is that, you know, she had been sort of moving into the position of sole leader, you know, for, for a while before his death. So she was in charge and her daughter, Fawn, I call Fawn Swan in the book, but she is kind of a public figure as well. So Errol's daughter, Fawn was also, you know, had a quite a bit of power. And there was an articulated hierarchy involving levels, six or seven levels. Everybody wore a, a colored wristband indicating their level. So it went from the family at the top, they had purple wristbands, and that was, you know, Errol and her blood family, and a bunch of other people who had, some of whom, you know, had been in relationships with Fawn, that was a way up the hierarchy, or yeah, or just had been at the farm for a really long time. 
and were sort of integral to its working. And then way down to the bottom, which was Green, Presentic Apprentice, which was, you know, people who had just arrived. So the power was very much, you know, concentrated at the tippy top and then sort of filtered down these levels. To you, is that fascinating considering some of the principles and philosophies that they followed from Wolf to the point where it's like you guys are, you know, abandoning what you refer to as the death culture and which is a system that's very much based in hierarchy. I think that's easy to assess. And then you're implementing a very deep sense of hierarchy uh, within this community. Um, that you claim to be escaping the death culture with. Yeah. Well, when I, when I first, when I arrived, of course, none of this was explicit. They weren't telling this in their website or letting people know before they arrived. This was something that I found out, you know, kind of by chance about two weeks after I had shown up, I had also just recently given the farm all my money, like what, what was left of my grant money, which was almost all of it. Cause I had been extremely parsimonious with it. So when I found out about the levels, I was just shocked and chagrined and like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, I, I'm trying to get away from <laughs> ratings and rankings and having, you know, like numbers put on my worth and my accomplishments. So yeah, it totally shocked me. And the, the longer term Zendix, who I initially expressed my concern to, just was like, well... You know, you're only seeing it that way because of your competitive conditioning, but it's really not that way because she just basically told me it's not a hierarchy, you know, because it's coming from a totally different place. And it's just that, you know, people have been, who have been around longer, they take more responsibility, but just sort of throwing it back at me that I was making it seem this way because of the corrupt place that I was coming from. And I didn't immediately change my mind about it. I still felt like this is really weird and doesn't quite add up. But I was I was bought in, you know, and I wasn't going to just leave after making that huge investment. So I just sort of had to let this let this paradox sink in and be there and figure that, you know, eventually as I spent more time at Zendik, I too would understand this very weird thing that she was telling me, you know, that, that I would, I, I would gain this secret knowledge that would allow me to see the levels <laughs> in the appropriate way. Right. So they were gaslighting you to a certain degree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's, you know, strange in its own sense, in terms of you mentioned, you know, that was kind of like the first person you brought that thought to and, you know, she kind of just threw it right back at you. Other than that person, was there anyone that you found as, you know, a true confidant within the community initially, like in terms of uh, allies, so to speak, in this system of hierarchy? I think throughout my time at Zendik, I always felt freer to speak my mind and sort of tell my truth to people who were below me in the hierarchy. So I eventually moved up at least a little bit or who were on the same level as me, because I wasn't worried that those people, you know, were going to bring me up in a meeting or get me in trouble for some impure thing that I had, that I had said, but that didn't necessarily translate into having 
a confidant. I mean, maybe to some degree, sometimes there was one woman in particular who came to the farm a few years after me and we became very good friends. And I, I felt really at ease with her in, in the sense that I wasn't worried about her, you know, tattling on me or getting me in trouble. But I don't know that that really ever translated into voicing my, my doubts or my experiences of dissonance with regard to how the farm was run. The only way I would have voiced those things was in a context of like, I'm having this terrible thought. It's gnawing at me. It's distracting me. I want to get rid of it. I want to confess. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever really got to the point where I was like, oh yeah, like this fucked up thing just happened. Can you believe it? Yeah, I definitely feel like that's where part of the power struggle to jump in for the first time here. One thing that I keep going back to here while you talk about the hierarchy is what is that hierarchy transition like between levels? Do you have like some kind of like one-off conversation? Do they bring you in like in like an interview sort of setting? Is it public? Well, so the, the official hierarchy only lasted for about 11 months after I arrived. It was, it was dissolved in late September of the year 2000. But so, in, so I didn't have a lot of experiences of, you know, changing levels. But I think the one experience I did have, it was some sort of a, it was some sort of a, a group, I think it was some sort of a group conversation. And so I had the green wristband. And then the next level up was core apprentice, core with a K, um, which was a brown wristband. And as I recall, there was some, there was some meeting and someone higher up asked those of us who had the green wristbands, whether we thought we were qualified to move up. There were a list of criteria for each level. It's just that the criteria, it was all mumbo jumbo. It was like about commitment and level of evolution. It, you, there was nothing quantifiable and you couldn't really pin it down. So my memory of moving up from green to brown was really not being sure if I actually met these criteria, but looking around the room and seeing that everybody else with a green wristband was raising their hand that they were ready. And I was like, well, I'm at least as evolved as they are. So I'll just say yes too. So that's what I remember. And then th there was this meeting that happened in September of, of year 2000, in which we were all gathered together and we were supposed to voice our criticisms of the farm so that we could clear them out and move past them and get stronger. And so we all sort of walked into this trap, you know, thinking it was, yay, glass nose, this is going to be great. And then Errol, you know, came down later and eviscerated each one of us for the things that we had said. And then afterwards, her daughter showed up and told us that we're not going to have the levels anymore because people were, you know, using that to not be as involved as they could be. You know, she said, you know, right now you're in or you're out, raise your hand if you want to be here. We don't need a bunch of hangers on, you know. And so, of course, everybody raised their hands. So there was this dramatic meeting where the levels, you know, were dissolved but not really right? <laughs> because at least I was always a hundred percent aware of where I was in the hierarchy. We didn't need wristbands. You know, we, we all, we all knew where we stood and getting rid of the wristbands really didn't change anything. Right. I feel like it would be definitely hard to clear the room of who had clout and who didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who doesn't have to ask for certain things who does. It's all so insane to me that things like this happen because that's just one powerful mind game after another. It has to be completely exhausting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was exhausting to be constantly aware of, of one's place in the hierarchy. And 
I mean, I was just constantly, you know, policing my thoughts and I believed in thought crime. So you talk a lot about how it was apparent that you knew where you were in the hierarchy system for various reasons. Um, I read briefly that some of that was also kind of displayed through like living conditions and people who were on the lower end of the hierarchy had definitely had rougher sleeping quarters. I think you described it as camping inside, <laughs> indoor camping pretty much while you're inside of a horse barn setting up tents. Of course, if you were in the inner circle, you had a, a nicer area. Yeah. Yeah. When I first, when I first got there, the conditions were pretty primitive. The Zendix had just moved to this place in North Carolina in I think the spring of 99. So there was still a lot of work to do to get it set up. And so, yeah, the new people were put in this sort of plywood box in the back of the horse barn, which was, you know, a little less drafty than the main space. And then eventually I moved into the main space of the horse barn and, and that was, that was quite drafty. And, and then, but not long after that, I moved into, into the, the upstairs of the farmhouse with a bunch of other women, which was a lot more pleasant, still definitely dormitory conditions. I mean, throughout the time I lived at the farm, I never had much privacy. I just had, everybody had a space. It was called, you have you know, a bed and then, you know, a, a little bit of, of room for, for your belongings and you can, you know, put some pictures up on the wall. But, but that was about it. Now, in your own words and perspective, would you mind describing the system of, you know, these dating administrators? Yeah. When I first arrived at the farm, there was a system for arranging sexual assignations that involved two dating straighters, which are short for administrator the third party system. And how it worked was if I was interested in a guy, I would go to one of these traders and quote, hit him up. We use lots of 60s lingo at the farm for either a walk or a date. And a walk meant it could be an actual walk or, or maybe if it was cold or the weather was bad, you would be indoors somewhere. But a walk just meant, you know, hanging out, talking, getting to know each other, you know, petting, necking, whatever, not sex, probably not nudity. And then a, a date was going to some private space, although dates could also happen out, out, out in a field, but that could happen too. And, and that involved, you know, nudity and sex. And so I would, you know, I would ask the straighter to hit the person up for me. She would go and do it. She would come back and give me the answer. And if the answer was, yes, and it was a walk, we were good to go. If it was yes, and it was a date, then there was this whole other process that unfolded of requesting a date space. There were certain, you know, date spaces scattered around the farm, these little tiny shacks just big enough for a double bed in the nightstand. Or if you were unlucky, you might end up in the trailer, which was really ratty, or the back of the van with the seats pulled out. So you would you would request a date space and, and get hooked up with that. And then and then the, the women had to get specced, you know, checked for whether we were in a fertile stage of our cycle or not. And then we would be told you can, you can quote, ball or i.e. have intercourse or you can't. And what does that do to you? I mean, psychologically at the time in terms of your, your view on, you know, sexual relations? Well, I think when I first heard about the third party system, I actually thought it was great. I thought it sounded like a fairy tale because 
I came to the farm a virgin. I had had, you know, I had, I had a couple sexual encounters when I was out traveling very far from home. I didn't feel comfortable kind of acknowledging or expressing my sexual self around, you know, my friends or my family. It seemed like something I had to hide. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't terrible at flirting, but I certainly wasn't good at it. And so when I heard about this, this system, I was like, great. Like I, I have allies, you know, there, there's a, there's a, a there's a, a setup whereby someone else is going to help me to do this thing. That's really hard. And also, you know, here, sex and sexuality are a part of life. So I, you know, I, I was, I was all for it. I think, you know, in retrospect, of course, when I, when I look back on it, I can see, you know, all the ways in which the system was, was just, you know, set up to control, control people's sexuality, you know, even, even down to this sort of symbolic penetration of the woman by the group, you know, before, before she even gets to, you know, go and have sex with whoever she's getting together with. So it's very involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it's not that everybody knew everybody's business, but everybody could know everybody's business. Like you were not going to keep it a secret that, you know, you were involved in so-and-so, you know, or involved with so-and-so. You just everybody, everybody had access to all the information. It's very interesting dynamic. It's tough for me just, you know, from a completely different experience than that with that subject where I just, it's, it's hard to relate. So I find it fascinating here. You talk about it through research that I did. And I don't know what you could speak to this, if anything at all, but you know, I kind of heard some rumors of Wolf, maybe when he was around influencing his power to manipulate certain women in particular on the farm. Um, do you feel if any of that has holds any weight? Um, or if you had heard anything in relation to that? Yeah, I mean, my understanding of Wolf's sexual scene was that he pretty much, you know, had sex with like, most, if not all of the adult women on the farm. And he set that dynamic up for himself. We were not allowed to use condoms at Zendik until about four years after Wolf died. And my understanding of why that happened was that Wolf didn't like to use condoms. And if he was going to get together with anybody, you know, he didn't want to have to use one. He wanted the responsibility for birth control to be on the woman. From what I've heard from various women who did have sexual experiences with him, like some of them loved it, thought it was great. Others, not so much, you know, and, and my, my, my sense of the situation was, you know, if, Wolf wanted to get together with you, you weren't going to say no, you know, and I'm just going to say, this is all from what I've heard, because of course I wasn't there. This didn't happen to me. This is just the best I can glean from other people, you know, other people's reports. Absolutely. And in terms of addressing that question, that's exactly where we're coming from with that as well. It's, it's all alleged in terms of things that I had found. So, I mean, it's just a consistent cycle of abusing power, just in different ways across the minds. The only thing I can really think of hearing that, I mean, I had read that a little bit in your book and it still just, it blew me away to read. And then it blew me away just you explaining it yourself. It's just such a different idea, like what Ben said, than what we're used to. But I guess what I was thinking of was, did people usually just 
gravitate towards the same people? Was there like a longstanding thing? Hey, you can't go out with this person because they actually gravitate more towards this person? Or Well, I mean, people did, you know, form relationships at the mm-hmm. farm. Of course, Errol was allowed to be monogamous and have as long a term relationship as she wanted, which she did once after Wolf died. She found herself a boyfriend and, you know, kept him for quite some time. And then Fawn was also allowed to be monogamous for as long as she wanted her relationships to last. Other people, not so much. I mean, there were, there were some, I would say there were some relationships among the rank and file that, you know, maybe lasted on and off for a number of years. Um, I had a relationship with one guy that was on and off, you know, in the, in the same way, mostly off, but we got together, you know, a few different times in the course of my five years there. Um, but usually for those who were not Errol and Vaughn, if you did get truly attached to someone at some point, you know, one of the higher ups, somebody was going to tell you that you were acting quote square, that your, your relationship was, was a threat to the survival of the community that you should have dates with other people, that you should consider, this was sort of the worst insult, you should consider going and getting an apartment. Like just going back to the death culture because clearly all you care about is each other. You don't really care about the revolution. And, you know, this is not what we want. So so my understanding of this dynamic was just that, like Errol needed everybody's primary loyalty to be to herself. So it was a threat to her if two people you know, be, became more loyal to each other and to her. And so those relationships just, you know, c- could not be allowed to last. So Ben and I have been on this journey in the past month or so. And we're so glad that we came across your story because it just, it fits exactly what we've been wanting to tell the story of. And the common theme is just seeing these people that have a deep hunger for power projecting this image that feels like it's almost too good to be true in the simplest way. You know, it's hard to imagine it being any other way because that's just the most human element that's going to always be part of it is that a mindset is a mindset and adhering to something and hearing all of these extremely strict societal rules in a place where everything seemed to be promised to be free and open, you know, and artistic expression being a part of that. It's just it always seems to go in the opposite direction. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always, there's always the cover story and the real story. And, you know, Wolf wrote, (laughs) wrote and spoke pages and pages of philosophy, but it it just, I don't, I, I kind of, when I think about Zendik, I kind of see the philosophy as being utterly irrelevant because it, what really mattered was what we did and how we behaved. And it's kind of ironic too. I remember Errol talking about the definition of, of religion, what, what, what the word religion meant. And she, you know, was talking about, I think the Latin root of it, that religio um, means, means, or, well, that's not the infinitive, but anyway, that that verb means to bind to. So your religion is not what you profess it is what you bind to it is what you actually do, you know? And so, but yeah, by, by Zendik's, by Errol's own definition of religion, Zendik's religion was not 
creative or pre-evolution or creative evolution, which is what we said our religion was, which was this idea of evolving in the instant or something. It, it, it was, it, it was this c- competitiveness and, you know, this science of how to cut each other down, you know, and at the same time, I think there were beautiful parts of living at the farm. And I think there were ways in which we Zendix kind in, in some ways like lived out our lived out this philosophy in spite of ourselves. Like that sounds kind of weird. But like for example, we talked about cooperation, that we were creating a culture based on cooperation and honesty. And th- there was in some ways, there was a high degree of honesty. It was just that there were lots of things that were off limits and and sort of ways you had to twist yourself and parts of yourself you couldn't show. Within a sort of, within the Zenic framework, there was a fair amount of honesty. But then I think about cooperation, you know, and there was, there was all this, all this competition going on for like the scarce resource of Errol's love, for example. But on a day-to-day level, we really did learn how to cooperate, you know, just in, in doing all the work we had to do in the farm and, and getting ready for our, epic selling trips, you know, and, and sometimes, and, you know, helping each other out a lot of the time. Like, I, I know that one, one of the things I learned at Zendik was just how to really pay attention to group dynamics in a working situation when there's like, you know, 15 people working on a project, you know, I got really good at like sensing where the holdup is and, and, and how to fix it, you know, all the time that we spent physically together, you know, working together, I think that really sort of like worked its way into our relationships with, with each other and, and kind of by brute force created this, a closeness, you know, that has, that has really, that has lasted a really long time for a lot of us who lived there, you know? And of course also that closeness comes from just having shared this, having shared this experience. And, and then just in relation to the ideals of Zendik, I think, I mean, so many of my, you know, dearest friends are, you know, fellow former Zendix. And I think there is, there is some part of that ideal that, that, that was positive in the sense that it attracted all these people who would never, never otherwise have met each other, who were just like willing to take a risk and willing to like look at the world around them and say, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I want something different. And even if Zendik really wasn't different in so many ways, just, just by attracting all these people and kind of being the loom on which we could weave this web of relationship, I kind of think it did a service to humanity because that's what remains, you know? These relationships are what is still there of Zendik Farm. So I guess reflecting on more of the happier memories there, is there one night that you just, you know, everything felt synchronous with the message and the belief that you can, would be comfortable with expanding upon or? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, so one thing that comes to mind is there was this time, I think it was, it would have been late 2002 when so Errol, Errol got cancer in, in 2002 and she and her daughter and a bunch of other sort of higher ups um, went to Mexico so she could get this holistic treatment there. And so we, the people, 
the rank and file. We were at home alone. And, um, and, and we, so somebody had the idea of making a video that we would send to the people in Mexico. And the joke of the video would be that because they were gone, we were all just totally mentally falling apart and falling back into our old neuroses. So, 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 the, the, so the, the video was just, you know, all these scenes of people just like, you know, doing exaggerated versions of, you know, of, of their sort of neurotic behaviors. So for example, me, I was the Tupperware queen of Zendik Farm. I was in charge of Tupperware. I was always getting upset with people when they would like, you know, take the lids away and separate them from the tubs. And so my scene was like, I'm diving into the Tupperware cabinet and I'm finding that there are lids missing and I just, you know, totally lose my shit. So, <laughs> so, so, so we made this video and it was just somebody's idea. And there was, you know, he was not high up in the hierarchy. He was just a guy who had a good idea. And he went around sort of enlisting people in the project. We were all super you know, enthusiastic about it. We all like, you know, chipped in with ideas and props and, you know, being the actors and, 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 and helping to film and do the sounds and stuff. And, and it was, and it was so fun, you know, and then we, we sent it off to Mexico and they watched it and they loved it. But like that, that experience, that was like what Zendik Farm, it's not, it's not that it was what it should have been or could have been because I don't think that was necessarily built in, into its DNA, but that was like, that was kind of what we did when left to our own devices. You know, when, the, when, the, when this coercive power was like out of the country, you know, we were sort of able to just be ourselves and really truly improvise something that was really fun for us. That's, it. That's awesome that you guys were able to find some time to truly be yourself, like you mentioned there, without being under the thumb of Errol and Fawn, of course. Helen, if I may, I had read a blog post of yours from your website, um, where you spoke of a previous member and acquaintance of yours, uh, who unfortunately took the life of five others. What, if at all, do you think this, this gentleman's experience on Zendik Farms impacted him psychologically and you know, where ultimately led to what he did. From what he told me about the effects of his time at Zendik on him, this is what I understand. When he arrived at Zendik, he was, he was very much a liberal, you know, he thought of himself as a nice guy, sort of, a, I don't know, politically correct type of person. And at Zendik, he sort of got more in touch with his like, you know, masculine, visceral, animal nature. He realized he was not a nice guy. And so by the time he left, you know, he was just, you know, he had, he had changed in that way. Also, there, were, there was a common pattern at the farm that you would show up and either, you know, willingly or under pressure, you would hand over your stuff, like your cash and your car basically were the things that most people handed over either, you know, sooner or later. And so this man, he, he did that you know, just like a lot of people. And he, you know, he kind of thought like as many of us did that he was throwing in with this group for life. You know, this was going to be his tribe. This was going to be his family. And so of course he didn't need the car. He didn't need the money. And he said that he did this because he was in love with, you know, one of the 
one of the women who lived there, that he handed over this stuff because he was in love. And, and then later, I think it was, I think it was less than a year later, he wasn't there for all that long. He was asked to leave. Um, and he, he, he says that he said that, you know, he could, on the one hand, he could totally see why he was asked to leave. And there was some incident that occurred with a motor vehicle where, according to him, he really like let the tribe down. So he had, he had that thought, but also I think he, you know, he, he did feel betrayed, you know, um, by, by that whole situation and, you know, and kind of saw that as like the first betrayal in a long string of betrayals. So, but, but when I, when I first, when I first, you know, got in touch with him, when I first made his like, you know, over the phone internet acquaintance in, it was in 2008 through a mutual friend who had also lived at Zendik. I mean, he was just, he was a, a, a totally different person from who he eventually became from, you know, this person who, who murdered five people. I would not at all say that there was some sort of straight line from living at Zendik Farm to becoming a mass murderer. I don't see that at all. Um, and, and I think that, you know, in terms of what I, what I just said, you know, his own description of what changed for him at the farm, it, it is possible to see that as one step in that trajectory, but it was in no way a sort of point of no return step. It was just, it was one step along the way. And I think the point of no return came way, 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 way later. So kind of an off the wall question here, uh, through the depths of the internet resources that I was able to discover on this particular forum, I saw someone in a comment mention um, that at one time, and this is completely alleged, that an FBI agent visited the farm and was basically stated that he was just doing research. Um, do you know of any federal government presence or entity ever uh, visiting the farm at all in the time that you were there or previously? Um, federal agents. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't remember. No, I, I don't remember ever hearing about that. Right. And that's how I kind of thought it was just very odd. And then uh, a, a couple people backed it up, like reinforced it, that it did happen. Did they say when or did they give any other details about it? Yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't like a whole lot of details there. So that's why, you know, it's completely alleged. There's no there's no hard facts. Yeah, I mean, I, what I did hear about was the Child Protective Services showing up at the farm when it was in Texas. I That would have been in the 90s. I believe, or the late 80s. I'm, I'm not totally sure about that. But I mean, that's, that's the only instance that I heard of, of government intervention, but that wouldn't have been federal. It would have been... Right, that would have been state level. So Ben did say that we have listened to some of the music and I just have to say it's ex- it is extremely hypnotic. Really? I thought Ben at one, at one point had told me that everything was always improvised. Yes, um, yes, it was. I mean, the Wolf's music... Wolf would often sing poems that he had written. So the poems, I'm not sure. Definitely a, a lot of Wolf's lyrics were not improvised. They were 
I believe the poems he'd already written, but I'm pretty sure. But then the music, the music around it, I think probably was improvised. Then when Errol took over the band, I'm pretty sure that all the, all the music in the Errol era was hundred percent improvised, including the lyrics. So I think some of the recordings that are, you know, supposed to be music are kind of maybe more like spoken word. And I mean, he certainly, you know, he, he spoke off the cuff, you know, very well. He, he had his own, he had a TV show in Austin where he would just, you know, rap and rap and rap. So for you, what was the, you know, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, the, that final moment? Well, that straw did not break the camel's back until more than a year after I physically departed. I did not leave the farm because I decided it was all bullshit and I had enough. I left because I was kicked out after a particularly miserable selling trip. And so, so that was when I, you know, physically departed. My mental, emotional departure happened about 14 months later. I, I, um, in that time, you know, I had been just out of the death culture. I had been feeling doomed because, you know, I still believed that Zendik was a revolution. It was going to save the planet. I was an utter failure for not being able to make it there. And, but in, you know, in that first year or so I had, you know, I, I had simply, I had had to, you know, make friends and take on new projects and, you know, do things to make money to support myself. And so there was, there was some degree of like on sort of a bodily level, some degree of acceptance of of life in the outside world, but still, but still, I just, I felt like, I felt like my life was basically wrong because I wasn't there. Um, and I even, I mean, I, I traveled around the world to like cut down my death culture fantasies because I thought that if I went to all these places I had dreamed of visiting for years and saw that they were, it was just the death culture there too, that that would help me, you know, be ready to return to the farm and fully commit the next time around. So all that was happening. I got back, I got, I, I traveled, the farm was in West Virginia by the time I left and I, I hitchhiked from there to, um, to California and then Arizona. And anyway, I I traveled around the world before I came back home to Brooklyn, where I am originally from. But by the time I got back there, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, well now I should be ready to return to the farm. Um, but I, I simply was not. And I, at that point, I kind of finally had a chance to, to, you know, take a load off and sort of rest and relax and not have to worry about where I was going to sleep or how I was going to get money to eat. And so I started sort of, you know, allowing myself to think a little more deeply about things and kind of allow for the possibility that there could be a third path besides returning to Zendik or just feeling doomed for the rest of my life. So I was starting to have my own process of opening up to, you know, to to new ideas. Um, And then in like very early December of 2005, a, 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 you know, a friend who had also lived at the farm and left about six months after I had was coming through New York and we got together and she had gotten the cult memo and she, um, passed it on to me. Um, but sort of on a, on a, on a more basic level, like 
when I, when she and I got together, the, the, the number one thing on my mind was like, are you going back? Like she had been a better seller than I, than I had been, you know, she had stayed, stayed longer than I had. I mean, she had left after I had, I figured, of course she wants to go back and she sort of has a head start on that over me. So when I asked her if she was going back and she said, hell no, I was like, really? Because maybe that means I don't need to go back either. You know, I can't let go of that either, let go of that too. And then we had just had this watershed conversation in which we sort of retold the story of our time at the farm, you know, um, going from, yeah, we were bad people. We couldn't hack it there to like, it was a fucked up place. Thank goodness we're out. And then I read the book that she recommended and I sort of saw how Zendik fit this pattern, you know, that it wasn't singular. It wasn't the revolution. It wasn't like the one true thing on the planet. It was simply a variation on, you know, this tried and true set of patterns. Um, and also before I left, like at the time I left, I was a true believer. And at the same time, in the month or so before I left, I did have moments of questioning things that Errol said in a way that I think I really hadn't before. And so it's not that my faith in the cause was fracturing or anything, but there were little tiny moments, you know, of thinking like, that's a contradiction. What she just said is a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. You know, and I don't know, I, I don't know if she picked up on that. And I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't gotten kicked out. You know, if those tiny, tiny little cracks would have grown into something big enough to let me slip through them. But yeah, I was, I was exiled. So it's a fascinating way for it all to end. And I'm, I'm sure that definitely took, as you stated, a long time to process there. So if you could describe Errol in one word, what would it be and why? Ruthless. <laughs> because she was willing to do anything for the sake of her power and the sake of her family. All right. Well, that will complete this interview here with Miss Helen Zuman. Helen, if you wouldn't mind, please let readers know when they can expect your, your next book. Yes. Well, I have a deadline for the book. I want it to come out by the spring of 2024 since it's set in the fall of 2024 and I want it to be timely. So readers can, can look for it then. And in the meantime, you can find me at my website, HelenZuman.com, H-E-L-E-N-Z-U-M-A-N.com. You can find links to all the places to buy mating in captivity. Also a link to my podcast, Chocolate Church. And, you know, in my, on my blog page, there's, um, you know, various pieces of writing from the past uh, few years. And please do go ahead and sign up for my email list so we can keep in touch. And when you sign up, you get, you know, some bonuses from Deep in My Zendic Vault. Um, and on the mailing list, you will hear things about cults and communities and Zendik and stuff and also about life coaching because now I'm a life coach and so I I um I bring that I bring that into the mix and you know and actually life coaching is really closely related to the cult phenomenon because cults are all about stripping you of self-trust and and having you use the power of stories against yourself and coaching is all about building self-trust and 
using your storytelling powers for yourself. Well, you, you do phenomenal work um, and, and we commend you on that. Uh, we appreciate you coming on today. Your story is absolutely fascinating uh, and we really were blessed to, to have you share that with us today and expand on, on your experience with Zendek Farms. As always, stay tuned with the DIP Podcast Network on all social medias at the DIP Network. Have a nice day.